Michael Abel seemed like an A-list Washington lawyer. A graduate of Harvard Law School, he joined the Justice Department and rose to become its Director of International Affairs, the office in charge of extraditing accused criminals overseas so they can be tried in U.S. courtrooms. Then, like many Justice Department veterans, he left the government and joined a Tony Whiteshoe law firm, a respectable member of the Washington legal community. Or so he seemed. But a 1989 article in the Washington Post cast a harsher look at Abel's career. It revealed that he had become the trusted lawyer and advisor to the capos of Colombia's Cali Cartel, one of the most feared and powerful drug organizations in the world. Abel wasn't just representing the Colombian drug lords inside the U.S. courtroom. He was fighting to keep them out of U.S. courtrooms, flying to Spain to testify against extraditing the Cali Cartel's boss, arguing that the U.S. justice system was flawed. And he was also urging the Congress to tinker with U.S. treaties to make it harder to extradite foreign criminals back to the United States without disclosing his drug lord clients who would benefit from the changes. One former Senate aide was quoted as saying this about Abel. This goes beyond simple advocacy of people in need. The question that has to be put is, do we have a cartel lobbyist in Washington? Abel defended his conduct as par for the course, but five years after that article appeared, the FBI raided his law office, seizing documents and memos and other communications with his clients to show he had crossed the line separating legitimate legal representation in order to obstruct justice on behalf of the Cali cartel. In 1995, he and another cartel lawyer, along with dozens of others, were indicted by federal prosecutors in Miami in what the U.S. attorney at the time called the single most significant prosecution history against the Cali cartel. It was a landmark case that opened the door for federal prosecutors to investigate the conduct of defense lawyers and seize their communications with their clients when the government had evidence the lawyers were committing crimes. It's a case that has new relevance these days, and it's our subject on today's Buried Treasure. I'm Mike Lizakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, Dan, that was a pretty uh, ahead-of-the-curve story that the Washington Post ran in 1989. You know, uh, I actually remember that story. Um, I was a um, freshly minted Justice Department reporter working for a weekly paper in Washington called Legal Times. Um, and um, among the bylines that I uh, would always look out for was a veteran grizzled reporter at the Washington Post named Mike Isakoff. Um, and I, I actually really do rem- remember that when that uh, piece came out, um, and I remember, um, you know, kind of following, trying to follow up on it. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, as you pointed out in the introduction, um, it wasn't until, what, five, six years later uh, that uh, Abel was uh, was indicted, but it was a really big deal at the time for the Justice Department to go after a member of the defense bar that aggressively. Yeah, and um, I I always thought that this was uh, a highly significant piece um, and um, had all sorts of legal possibilities because just the idea that there was a that the Cali cartel, which was at the time responsible for most of the cart cocaine that was pouring into the United States. At this point, the Cali cartel has 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 eclipsed 
the Medellin cartel, which was the, uh, you know, Pablo Escobar and Carlos Later, the ones that captured the public's imagination. The Cali cartel was much more uh, methodical, much more businesslike, and was playing a bigger role in the cocaine trade at the time. Um, I was um, so enamored of my reporting in this piece that um, years later, uh, decades later, in fact, you know when the uh, show, the Netflix show Narcos came on? Oh, yeah, I love that show. Focused the, on the Madian cartel. I tried, to, I tried to sell them a whole uh, season on Mike Bell, the lawyer, and, uh, uh, and his role is being the Washington, D.C. guy for the Cali cartel. Um, uh, unfortunately, they didn't, uh, they didn't buy it. They were more interested in, in, the, in the drug lords than the lawyers for the drug lords. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that, I mean, I thought that the distinction here uh, was that, you know, Abel was going way beyond, obviously beyond legal representation. But what was interesting was that he was actually lobbying, essentially, on their behalf. He was going into, he was like going in, into Congress to try to get, um, you know, uh, uh, extradition treaties changed. I mean, he, th- that is a far different from, um, you know, a, a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, everyone has a right to counsel. Everybody has a right to a vigorous defense. It's an adversarial uh, justice system. But um, it, it's, it's taking it uh, well beyond that to actually lobby on behalf of, uh, of a criminal organization inside the Congress of the United States. And he did not, as I understand it, he did not disclose his relationship uh, with um, with the Kali cartel when he was doing that. Exactly. He's testifying before Congress about how to uh, craft uh, uh, mutual legal assistance treaties between the United States and foreign governments. Um, and uh, uh, representing himself as an, a, a distinguished expert who had uh, headed the Justice Department office that was uh, uh, supervised extradition. Uh, and um, uh, what he didn't tell uh, the Congress, and at the, at the time, it was John Kerry was the uh, Foreign Relations Subcommittee chair who was uh, crafting legislation to re, uh, recast these mutual legal assistance treaties. And um, Kerry's people were quite incensed when they learned that Abel, uh, who had been a witness before their uh, subcommittee, um, had these drug lord clients who would benefit from the uh, uh, recommended recommended changes uh, he wanted in these treaties. He also, by the way, Abel uh, uh, was uh, lobbying the American Bar Association's House of Delegates to adopt uh, the uh, uh, his version of the mu- of the mutual legal assistance treaties. So it was um, uh, it was um, quite it was quite it made quite an impact within the legal community when uh, the Abel story uh, was published. You know, there's a there's a human element to this uh, story that I find fascinating, and there is a long history of uh, criminal defense lawyers um, kind of getting seduced uh, by the the money and the sometimes the glamour and the intrigue of the of the worlds that their clients inhabit. Um, so you know, you have um, you know mob lawyers who've crossed that line. Uh, there was, you may remember, um, you know, after 9-11, Lynn Stewart, uh, a veteran criminal defense lawyer uh, in New York who was representing um, Sheikh Omar Abdel uh, Rahman, the blind sheik, 
and in the end um, was discovered to have been passing uh, notes uh, to her client, um, uh, f- uh, I guess from other members of, of his terrorist organization. And she ended up getting pros- disbarred, prosecuted, uh, went to prison for 10 years. I actually remember covering um, a lawyer in, in D.C. Superior Court, a defense lawyer named Art Reynolds, um, who got caught up with the drug uh, uh, gang that he was uh, defending, ended up uh, with his own cocaine habit um, and um, and kind of living, um, you know, living um, uh, high and mighty uh, uh, with 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 those uh, uh, drug dealers. So this is um, this is in some ways uh, part of the culture. This this has happened before. Right. Um, and yeah. and just and in 1994, which is five years after this uh, article appeared, um, the feds uh, raid Bell's office and the office of an of another defense lawyer, Bill Moran, uh, sees his communications with his clients. This produces uh, an outcry from the defense bar saying, oh, uh, you know, the feds are uh, violating attorney client privilege, the most sacrosanct, sacrosanct uh, part of the of, of the legal process. Um, uh, and um, of course, Abel ends up getting indicted. The feds charge that uh, there was the crime fraud exception, that he was uh, preparing false affidavits for his clients. He was um, uh, assisting them uh, in uh, in their drug uh, in their drug crimes, uh, and that he had crossed the line uh, in helping them import cocaine into the United States and escape, escape American justice. So let's make it clear why we're discussing this right now. Uh, and of course, it is because of the FBI search uh, last week of the office of um, Michael Cohen, the lawyer for the president of the United States. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there, you know, there was some kind of muted uh, criticism of the Justice Department, um, mostly from the Trump camp, actually, uh, you know, violating the sanctity of attorney-client privilege. Actually, it was Trump himself who tweeted um, on uh, Wednesday morning, attorney-client privilege is dead. Uh, But notably, uh, not much criticism from the organized uh, uh, bar or in fact, I, you know, I noticed uh, that uh, David Cole, a senior uh, person at the ACLU and a you know a, a very well respected civil civil libertarian, actually wrote a piece uh, that uh, last week in which um, in which he defended uh, the FBI's uh, uh, raid of of Michael Cohen's office and basically said there's no uh, you know there is this crime fraud exception um, if uh, the lawyer is in some ways f- facilitating. Uh, the criminal activities or engaging in, in his or her own uh, criminal activities, uh, you know, uh, th- th- that protection doesn't exist. Uh, that privilege doesn't exist. Um, so that's from the ACLU. Uh, so very different uh, from the reaction uh, back in, in the mid-1980s uh, in the Abel case. Now, you, one does have have to wonder uh, if the ACLU position is uh, somewhat influenced by the fact that it's President Trump's lawyer's office that has been uh, raided here, and that if it had been somebody else um, who the ACLU was less opposed to on so many other fronts, they might have uh, had a different position. But what we know is, uh, of course, we haven't seen the search warrant, but that um, the FBI, uh, after getting a referral from Robert Mueller, 
um, to the Southern District and getting approval from the highest levels of the Justice Department, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, um, uh, searched the offices of Michael Cohen and his hotel, uh, uh, his hotel room. Apparently, he's temporarily living in a hotel because his house is under construction, uh, to get evidence about the payoffs he made to uh, uh, Stormy Daniels and also um, the, the money paid by American Media, the company that owns the National Enquirer, to uh, a playboy, a former Playboy bunny, Karen McDougal, both of which had the purpose of keeping them silent, keeping these two women silent during the course of the 2016 election. So therefore, was uh, uh, the theory would go that Cohen may have been violating federal election law or facilitating the violation of federal election law by uh, making these payments. Um, now, um, of course, it is arguable that um, uh, President Trump made his lawyer's life much more difficult by saying, as he did the other day, that he knew nothing about um, the payments to Stormy Daniels. So that would suggest that there were no communications between Cohen and his client about the Stormy Daniels payoff. Um, and you know, it may well be that the feds cited that in their search warrant saying, hey, no issue here because we're just looking for the uh, the the any evidence relating to the payoffs, the president says it doesn't involve any communications with him. So right, so so if there are no communications with him, then there are no privileged communications. But yeah, the whole you know uh, uh, Trump saying that uh, he never he didn't know that uh, his lawyer had paid this money. Um, I found that confusing because, you know, the best defense for Trump would be that he authorized the payment and it was they were his funds because he can uh, self-fund in a campaign. There would be no campaign finance uh, violation. But there's another possibility. Um, it is also possible that there were uh, emails between Cohen and some third party um, about all of this, in which case uh, the privilege, the attorney-client privilege would be waived because – you know, it's the it's the uh, client who holds the privilege. If there's someone else who's in on those uh, uh, emails or, or discussions, then the privilege is waived, and then they could go in and, and seize those those documents. The, the other thing that I think we we have heard, and this would be a normal practice um, when you uh, go in and seize documents from a um, you know from a lawyer, um, is that they would have two teams. The FBI would have two teams: a so-called clean team and a dirty team. Uh, so that you uh, wall off, uh, you know, potentially, you know, privileged conversations um, and um, and to make sure that that is all done, uh, you know, according to, you know, procedures and everything. So I, I assume that's what they did, uh, although, you know, I don't know for sure. Right. Um, look, if you go in and seize all of uh, you seize Mike, uh, Michael Cohen's laptop, you see the. Uh, you seize all his electronics, the likelihood is you're going to find lots of communications with Donald Trump, whether it's about the Stormy Daniels payoff or the National Enquirer payoff. We don't know. Well, and actually, we don't know what the, you know, what the search warrant says it's for. I mean, it, it may it, it may be broader than that. Um, and so one question I have is if they seize, you know, uh, you know, hard drives and, and, you know, huge amounts of documents, uh, they may mostly be looking for um, records uh, relating to those payments, but 
What if they uh, stumble on records relating to uh, deals in Russia that involve uh, Trump or that in some way go to the uh, collusion um, investigation? I mean, I presumably they can just turn those over to Mueller, um, which which also raises a question about Mueller's uh, tactics here. Uh, perhaps um, he understood that this would be a controversial, a highly controversial move for him uh, to send FBI agents in to raid the president's um, lawyer's office um, and was happy to have the uh, the Southern, you know, uh, FBI agents in New York supervised by the prosecutors in the Southern District of, of New York uh, to do it and then benefit from whatever they found. Well, at, at a minimum, it has succeeded uh, in turning up the heat on the president himself. Uh, and uh, he has reacted as strongly as uh, as we've seen him react to anything, uh, and uh, supposedly is uh, is talking quite widely about uh, firing somebody as a result of this, whether it's Rod Rosenstein or goes beyond it, uh, we don't know. But it is worth pointing out that um, uh, the precedent for what the FBI did with Michael Cohen was set many years ago uh, with Michael Abel, the lawyer for the Cali cartel. Well, how fitting, uh, given that uh, James Comey, uh, the former FBI director, is out with a new book in which he compares Donald Trump uh, to, uh, to a mob boss, um, not unlike, um, you know, uh, drug cartels uh, that uh, Mike Abel uh, uh, got a little too close to. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you soon.